Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. Last week, 113 million Americans cast their votes in the midterm elections, a record number, and analysts are still debating what the results mean for the U.S. and the rest of the world. Although it is perhaps still too early to draw a conclusion about the significance of the midterm elections on global affairs, it is definitely not too early to discuss the impact of Trump's economic policies during the first two years of his administration. Indeed, when Americans voted, they voted during a period of strong economic growth. The U.S. Commerce Department reported that the economy grew by over 3% in the first two quarters of 2018. Furthermore, unemployment is at record lows. Since Trump's inauguration in 2016, over 3.7 million jobs were added to the economy, and the unemployment rate is at 3.7%, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Lastly, wage growth seems to be increasing between 2 and 3% a year, although some do argue that wages ought to be increasing even more. Despite the strength of the U.S. economy, many political analysts were surprised that Trump did not focus more forcefully on this subject during the run-up to the midterm elections. Today, however, we will focus almost exclusively on understanding the U.S. economy, U.S. trade relations, and Trump's economic policies. And here with me to help us explain Trump's trade policies is one of Europe's leading economists, Herr Professor Dr. Gabriel Felbermeier. Hi. Welcome, Professor Felbermeier. Hi. Professor Felbermeier studied economics at the University of Linz and then received his PhD from the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. Since 2010, he has been the director of the Center for International Economics at the IFO Institute in Munich. And since 2011, he has been a professor of economics at the University of Munich. He will become the new president of the Kiel Institute for the World Economy, and we're delighted he's moving to northern Germany. He is also a member of the Board of Academic Advisors to the German Federal Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. So, Professor Felbermeier, international economics is a complicated and confusing subject. So before we get too complicated, I'd like us to talk about the big picture. What are the most important changes to U.S. economic policy that Donald Trump has made during his first two years in the White House? Yeah, so first of all, uh, he came up with the largest tax reform uh, of the last decades, which uh, really provided enormous fiscal stimulus to the U.S. economy. And many of the positive results that we're seeing these days are uh, due to that tax reform. Uh, he also changed the tone quite dramatically on uh, uh, U.S. trade policy, where his uh, predecessor, Barack Obama, uh, tried to strike 
trade deals with uh, the United States or with uh, 11 other uh, Pacific Rim states. Uh, Trump follows a different approach, a more muscular approach, if you like, uh, one that puts American interests more uh, visibly first than that was the case before. There's been a change in substance, but also a change in tone. Maybe the change in tone is even more important than the change in substance. Uh, and the change in tone evolves a president uh, which is who is very active on Twitter, uh, who does not follow the usual diplomatic protocol, which has been very important in trade policy, where you talk to other leaders in ballrooms of luxury hotels uh, behind closed doors. Uh, uh, you do make your, th your, your, your threats. I mean, their negotiations often turn tough, but the public doesn't learn about it. Now we see trade policy conducted Uh, if you like, in real time with a president who comments uh, and discusses every move uh, every evening or every morning over Twitter. That is something that the world has not seen before. Very interesting. You mentioned the tax cuts, and that is one of my questions. Um, as I noted in the introduction, the U.S. economy seems to be very strong. Unemployment is low, growth is high, wages are increasing, and indeed, Trump and the Republican-controlled Congress passed large tax cuts at the end of 2017. Indeed, Trump has claimed that these tax cuts led to corporations moving over $300 billion back to the U.S. from foreign subsidies. And you just mentioned that some of the strength of the U.S. economy is due to that. So I, I want to dig into this a little bit more. What is the real impact of these tax cuts on the U.S. economy, both for the average American and also for U.S. corporations? Yeah. So it is clear that those tax cuts are big enough to really move behavior, both of households, savers, investors, and of corporations. The fact that um, the Tax Act has indeed led companies to repatriate profits from abroad per se is not a growth stimulus, because the question is whether this money is indeed invested or not. Uh, but we, we have seen relatively strong investment growth in the United States in the year of 2018, following the uh, entry into force of the Tariff Act. We've also seen strong price increases in the area of investment goods, so investment has become more expensive. The question is, Uh, yes, there's been more spending, but to what extent have productive capacities actually increased? That's something we will see in the course of the next years, I guess. We also observe a relatively strong increase in government, in the, in this, in the federal government's deficit. Uh, a lot of these uh, uh, tax cuts are not funded, uh, and uh, uh, the government has to borrow more uh, on financial markets. Uh, so what we see is a type of Keynesian deficit spending, which is, one might argue, ill-timed, uh, because even before 2018, the U.S. economy was doing reasonably well. Uh, and it is unusual to come forward with such a, a strong deficit spending in a period where uh, growth is robust, uh, share prices are up, the real estate markets are in a healthy shape, unemployment is going down. That has already happened in 2017. And so uh, the question remains, uh, is this... Uh, Are these positive effects that the tax cuts have brought, are they sustainable? Uh, and, and will we see those uh, effects uh, to continue in the next two years of Trump's presidency? I'll ask you about the future very soon, but I do want to talk about the deficit mm -hmm. since you mentioned it. The tax cuts indeed have increased the federal deficit quite a bit. Is this something that should concern us? 
Yes, I think it should uh, concern us. Uh, it, it means that the U.S. is borrowing heavily on international markets. Uh, it means that uh, uh, the additional demand that uh, comes about by this uh, borrowing uh, drives up uh, uh, the, econo- the U.S. economy maybe into the into a, 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 a situation of overheating. Uh, which might provoke uh, the Federal Reserve to increase interest rates faster than it would have done otherwise. And that provokes uh, repercussions, in particular in emerging markets. So the strong deficit spending, the interest rate reaction to that by the Fed is a problem for many emerging markets. And we have seen uh, crises this year in Argentina, in Turkey, uh, not so much uh, in the press, uh, issues also in India, Indonesia, Thailand, where uh, those interest rate increases in the United States, driven by deficit spending, have caused quite some havoc. Okay, so it is actually a a world issue, not just... It is a a world issue. It's potentially also an issue for the United States because uh, what goes up too fast has to has to come down uh, uh, even more dramatically. So uh, we are a little bit worried that the United States economy might be overheating and that the next recession might be uh, more dramatic than it uh, uh, would need to be. Okay, I want to move to uh, Donald Trump's focus on Europe now. And there are a couple of issues here that... that have been raised. The first was uh, rebalancing trade with Germany mm-hmm. and Europe, and the second was energy security in Nord Stream, uh, yeah. Nord Stream Two. So first, let's look at rebalancing trade with Germany and Europe. President Trump has been critical of EU trade policies. For example, he complained that Germany's economy is too export-driven. Furthermore, he has argued that there are too many German cars in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and not enough American cars. And lastly, he has said that the United States $151 billion trade surplus with Europe is a big problem. What do you think about President Trump's concerns about these trade imbalances with Europe? I think uh, these concerns are themselves not very balanced uh, because they focus on a very narrow uh, area of economic activity, essentially on the manufacturing sector, uh, which accounts for less than 20% of U.S. employment. And it doesn't really look at the strengths uh, of the U.S. economy in the much larger services sectors, uh, which is very diverse. But, of course, it is so big. Uh, and in that sector, the U.S. have a very uh, visible comparative advantage. So, yes, in manufacturing, in goods trade, the U.S. is running a deficit of 150 or so billion U.S. dollars with Europe. But if you look at services, there's a surplus of 60 billion U.S. dollars. And if you look at primary income, which is the net income that U.S. companies generate in Europe relative to the income that uh, European companies generate in the United States, we have another 110 or so billion U.S. dollar surplus of the United mm-hmm. States. And so we need to add these things up. So the economic relationship is not just goods trade, it's also services trade, and it's also the activities of U.S. multinationals in Europe. So if you do that what you find is a much more balanced relationship, which is actually in surplus. Uh, from the United States' perspective, the United States' current account, as we economists say, has been in surplus of $14 billion U.S. dollars in 2017, and it has been in surplus consistently since 2009. And so uh, we're worried that, uh, you know, in the American debate, uh, the focus is too much on that sector, where the United States is indeed not a world leader, and the Americans forget about their strengths, which are very much in the services sector. Thank you for that explanation. I learned a lot there. 
I'm no economist, I must add. Um, but let's move on to energy security and Nord Stream 2. So another criticism the Trump administration has had with Germany is its support of the pipeline project. Nord Stream 2 will create a new gas pipeline between Russia and Europe, thereby partially or fully bypassing an existing pipeline that goes through the Ukraine. Trump has claimed that Europe is already too reliant on Russian energy. Also, the Trump administration has claimed that Nord Stream 2 will allow Russia to hold Germany captive to its gas supplies, undermining European sovereignty. So what do you make of these concerns? I think there's, there are two points to be made. First, I think uh, Trump's analysis is correct. Uh, by relying so much on natural gas from Russia, Germany makes itself, itself vulnerable to a holdup. Uh, and it would be in Germany's, Germany's interest to diversify away uh, from that source of energy. And that is happening to some extent, as the European continent is building uh, terminals to accommodate the supply of liquid natural gas, for example, from Qatar, but also from, yes, sources. So that is happening. But I think uh, the U.S. administration is wrong in thinking that uh, North Stream 2 changes much. What it does is it bypasses Ukraine. Uh, and that might not be in the interest of uh, U.S. foreign policy, which wants to see Ukraine uh, strengthened politically and economically. But it, it, it does not per se change anything to uh, the situation, which is already uh, now that uh, the uh, Germans import a lot of Russian gas. It's just through a different, through a different route. What, uh, what the Nord Stream 2 project does is it makes Germany less vulnerable to a holdup uh, by Ukraine, which has in the past sometimes disrupted gas supply. Uh, and in that sense, it is a project that contributes to German uh, energy security. Interesting. So there's a third issue that just has come up because last week, of course, the uh, sanctions against Iran mm. went back into effect. So this is another, the third big area where U.S. foreign policy and um, EU trade relations are strained. So again, Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal, and last week those economic sanctions against Iran were reimposed. The EU has suggested that they would stay in the deal and also help European companies sidestep penalties for doing business with Iran. So what do you think will happen with these sanctions? And how do you think both the EU and European companies will respond or react to these sanctions? So we, we already see uh, that European businesses are pulling out of Iran. So I think uh, the extraterritorial ambitions that the, the U.S. have with their sanctions regime work. And the counter instruments that the European Commission has announced, so this blocking uh, regulation that, that, that they are using, uh, is not working. Indeed, uh, the economic logic is very clear. Uh, for almost all European firms doing uh, business in Iran, losing an American client or, or being uh, blocked from the United States market is so much more costly than losing an, a contract in Iran uh, that uh, in this conflict, uh, the U.S. simply has the better arguments. Okay. So uh, one last situation of conflict is all this talk of trade wars. Yeah. So 
using even the phrase trade wars is dangerous and problematic. I'm a scholar of, of war, in fact, uh, in the ethics of war and peace. So uh, trade wars to me are a lot different than real wars. Um, nevertheless, everyone seems to be talking about Trump's trade wars with China, with Mexico and Canada, which might be resolved, and again with the EU. So what is the rationale behind Trump's trade wars? And what do you think the outcome of these policies will be? So I think we, uh, we need to recognize that um, uh, the world is a very asymmetric one. Uh, in the sense that uh, the U.S. have very low import tariffs against most countries, against uh, the EU and against China for sure. And um, uh, that is not entirely reciprocated. So in cars, for example, the EU has a 10% import tariff, the U.S. 2.5, and China used to have a 25% import tariff. Now the question is, how do you negotiate those asymmetries away? And the usual logic in trade negotiations is uh, to uh, exchange concessions. That's how uh, the trade lawyers term it. In the sense that uh, I would, uh, if I were the EU, I would uh, grant uh, American suppliers better access to my market and I would ask for the same uh, from the United States. Now, if the United States have already given everything away, uh, those negotiations cannot really work. They could get... Uh, a, let's say, 2.5 percentage point reduction in the 10 percent import tariff in Europe, uh, and the Europeans would demand uh, the same in the United States. But that would uh, keep the symmetry in place. Mm-hmm. So how do you escape that dilemma? Well, you need to sidestep uh, the traditional protocol, which, is, which has always been, if negotiations fail, we fall back to the status quo. But what Trump says is, if negotiations fail, we go to a different state of the world, to a world where the United States imposes high tariffs on cars, for example. 25% tariffs are under discussion or even move to some situation of further escalation like uh, with China. So that changes uh, the game uh, in a very dramatic uh, manner. But from a game theoretic point of view, uh, from a negotiation theory point of view, that's what Trump has to do if he wants uh, to level the playing field. If he wants to get rid of this of the asymmetries, he really has to change the game. And um, so far, we must say, uh, he has been relatively successful. Uh, if you look at how uh, NAFTA has been renegotiated or how he has been uh, dealing with Korea, you know, his muscular approach actually delivers uh, and helps him fulfill his promises. Whether that is good for the U.S. economy uh, is a very different question, though. Okay, and let's talk about the future of the U.S. economy. In the next two years, do you foresee continued growth and economic stability in the U.S., or do you see something darker in the horizon? I think the next two years still look reasonably good. After that, we see some of the provisions uh, uh, in the 2017 Tax Act expire. So that would lead to the opposite of a fiscal stimulation, to a fiscal uh, to, to, let's say, call it, let's call it austerity package. You know? So that would be a drag on U.S. growth. Uh, and it might coincide uh, with the end of a very long and very positive business cycle. We had good growth now uh, in almost all OECD countries over nine years. And that will come to an end. Uh, and it will maybe coincide with that, with that uh, expiration of tax cuts. So 
for the re-election uh, of Donald Trump, that probably will not matter much because the next, let's say, six quarters still look quite okay. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, the the outlook is uncertain, though, because um, uh, the world uh, is losing confidence. Uh, we're seeing a slowdown in the eurozone. We see also a slowdown in China. But the United States economy is relatively closed, so the international uh, picture is not so important uh, to the United States than it would be for Germany, for example. And so uh, as long as fiscal and monetary policy remain in place in a, in a, in a growth-stimulating way, the bonanza goes on. But when, tariffs, uh, when, when the interest rates uh, have to be increased faster and stronger than planned, and if the fiscal stimulus expires, then uh, we'll see, we'll see uh, maybe a mild recession in the United States. Beyond 2021, I think. Okay. Let's move on to just one topic related to Germany. Do you think uh, Merkel's coming resignation will have much of an effect on transatlantic relations or the EU-ES uh, trade relationship? So that, I think, depends a lot who will be the next uh, chancellor. Now we have a couple of names around. Friedrich Merz uh, is uh, very active in the Atlantic Brücke, so that's a transatlanticist uh, uh, organization, and um, so he has very strong credentials here, stronger credentials, I think, uh, than uh, Angela Merkel. So a Chancellor Mer uh, Merz will probably be helpful. Uh, for the other two candidates in the race, um, I'm not so sure about that. I think uh, Kram Kahnbauer uh, is, is, in a sense, uh, following very similar policies uh, than those that, that Merkel followed, and Jens Spahn we simply don't know his, his, his position. So it really depends who will be uh, Merkel's successor. One thing uh, seems seems very likely, though, um, uh, you know, the, the first two years of Trump's presidency have led to a lot of disappointment uh, in, in Germany. Um, the tone has been relatively rough, uh, and uh, this will leave uh, traces. So uh, whoever will be the next chancellor, dealing with the United States will be different than two years before. A lot of people will be more cautious. There will be more skepticism. Uh, and, and that probably is true regardless of who will follow uh, Angela Merkel. Okay, thanks. Very interesting. Okay, let's move on to my last question. And this is a question I ask all of my guests. I always like to ask my guests about important issues that do not get enough attention from policymakers and scholars and the media. So everyone discusses climate change, mm -hmm. NATO, immigration, Russia, tariffs, trade wars, and so on. However, there are really important issues that do not get enough attention. So, Professor Felbermeyer, what is an important issue in either transatlantic relations or international trade that we are not paying enough attention to and that we should be paying much more attention to? Well, there's a, a whole array of, uh, of issues that would need more attention, I think. I'm a, 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 a trade economist, and I think many of the discussions that we have on trade today, much of the globalization skepticism, not just in the United States, but in many, many countries, is due to the failure of our, of our national policies to deal with shocks. Uh, they could be trade shocks, because it could also be technology shocks. And I think, you know, what we need to do in our economies 
is to have a much more rigorous discussion about how in the future we will deal with these shocks because they will be coming. Maybe, you know, the China shock is over now and we'll talk about digital economy related shocks, uh, technology shocks. And um, uh, we need to make our economies more resilient to those so that uh, our democratic systems uh, endure. That is not simply done by spending more on social programs. That's what social democrats in Europe often think, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it has to be much broader. We need to rethink education, probably. Uh, life, lifelong learning is, is one major issue. We also think how we deal with the rural and urban areas, because the urban areas have been doing well, the rural areas, areas have not been doing well. So how do we uh, heal uh, the the cleavages that have that have uh, arisen there. So uh, you know the, the social fabric, if you like, uh, needs to be prepared such that it becomes more resilient uh, to economic disruption in the future. A fascinating area that indeed we should all spend much more attention to. Thank you again, Professor Felbermeyer. That was a fascinating discussion. Thank you, and thank you for listening to the Transatlanticist. If you enjoy the show, please support us by subscribing for free with iTunes, TuneIn, or your podcast provider. If you would like to provide comments, suggest topics, or recommend guests, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email at asola at americacentrum.de. And remember, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the America Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening. Uh -huh.